Greetings and welcome to Trinity Radio Extra. I'm Jonathan Pritchett, and today I have my dear friend Nick Quint. Say hi, Nick. Hi, Nick. All right, and we're going to talk about the apocalyptic perspective on Paul today. Um, this is an issue in scholarship that has been around for quite some time. Scott McKnight uh, recently commented a, a couple of years ago how the only things going on in Pauline studies now is basically squabbles between the new perspective on Paul and the uh, apocalyptic perspective on Paul. And when it comes to the old so-called Lutheran Paul, and I guess you could toss in the Reformed Paul, nobody cares. Uh, in fact, not, not very many uh, major works on uh, Paul from, from that, that camp has made much of a dent. I know Paul Westerhelm is Westerholm. Or Stephen Westerholm. Yeah, Stephen, Stephen Westerholm. McMaster, yeah. Yeah. He, he's still trying to wave the flag, but nobody cares. Right. Well, I mean, Francis Watson, although Francis yeah. Watson's kind of in all four camps at once. It's a little weird. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I, I read uh, his book. I, I It's on the shelf. I can't remember the name of it, but it was the second edition where he pretty much revised everything from the first edition and walked away from his, you know, most of his new perspective leanings. Um, Oh, the title's long, so I can't think of the name uh, of it. What is it? It's uh, Paul and the Hermeneutics of Faith. Was that it? No. Well, since you're getting up, this is Trinity Radio Extra. I can get up. Yeah, we can get up while we want. So I don't have my headphones on. Uh, I got a baby over here, y'all. So that's how we do. Uh, yeah, uh, that's my that's my default. I don't know what I'm doing. Paul and the Gentiles, or something like that, isn't Paul it? Paul Judaism and the Gentiles. Here we go. That's what it is. Yeah. Yeah, re revised and expanded. He it should have just said rewritten because it, this was beyond the new perspective. So he's kind of uh, he's there's a whole thing in there. He he tries to work his way back around the Augustinianism and 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 that by way of new perspective and some other. It's weird. Um, but, but yeah, Stephen Westerholm's still waving that flag, but it's not really moving a whole, whole lot of the discussion. You can um, find most of the proponents teaching at RTS or McMaster, or not McMaster, um, Master Seminary, one of those, kind of the last holdouts or kind of the more conservative reform yeah. seminaries. But, but as far as the church goes, um, you know, the new perspective had been out for 25, 30 years before people started to get wind of it. And, you know, teaching in a seminary, we've got a lot of students who are, who are coming in and when they want to write theology papers, um, especially in my contemporary theology, where we talk about different takes on justification, which I'm sure we'll get into a little bit today. Um, they want to have their say for and against um, the new perspective. And I'm like, yeah, that's kind of old hat now. We got to talk about this now because it's, it's really just now catching up. But unfortunately... Um, a lot of people's first exposure to the apocalyptic Paul was when uh, N.T. Wright released Paul and his recent interpreters shortly after he made the big splash with Paul and the faithfulness of God, and a large chunk of its uh, engagement with the apocalyptic perspective. So they're getting a lot of critique as their first exposure to it, um, for those who actually read that book, but it's a, yeah. it's a pretty popular book. But um, not a lot of engagement with Campbell and those guys, you know, just the introduction. So um, why don't you explain broadly where it is? Because like the new perspective, it's a, 
that's an umbrella term for perspective. Same with the apocalyptic perspective is an umbrella term for perspective. So why don't you briefly give people kind of an overview of what that is, since you are the, uh, at least for Trinity Radio, you're our resident Pauline scholar. Um, I think Paul's overrated, as everyone knows. I'm a Peter guy who... Well, I'm, the more I'm studying the Gospel of John, the more I'm like, John's kind of where it's at. But oh, John's I, where you want to go now. Okay. I'm, I'm liking John, but that's because John is, I think, very apocalyptic too. So. Yeah, a slightly less enormous body of literature to have to sort through, right? Than Pauline yeah. studies, yeah. At least I think the patristics have a lot more fun with John than they, than they yeah, do. Yeah, well, of course they do, but you know you can do what if you're a patristic you can do whatever you want with any well, of it. you want what was it you wouldn't have uh without the gospel of john uh athanasius wouldn't have been able to defend the deity of christ and if it wasn't for the gospel True. of john arius wouldn't have been able to make his case for the subordination of the son so yeah the things that they were actually interested in rather than two thousand years later we're fighting over paul and have a mountain of literature to wade through but uh, like I said, I'm a Peter guy, and I grant that Peter did his share of, uh, well, and maybe for another time we could talk about who wrote first and second Peter, but uh, I think he did his fair share of, uh, I won't say plagiarism, but but honoring Paul with some some shadow language, but, you know, less to read, and I'm lazy in those terms, so I like Peter, but you're our Paul guy, so we don't want your, your years to go to waste before you jump ship uh, to, to Yonin studies, so... Give us, give us what it, the apocalyptic perspective on Paul and then where you situate yourself in that as soon as you get back. You've, uh, Nick is doing more important daddy duties while he's doing this. So there we go. Makes the screen better. My son was, I could tell, beginning to teeter on the brink of a meltdown. So he's sitting right here with us. So That's perfectly fine with us. We don't, we don't mind uh, babies uh, making noises in church, and we certainly don't mind adding some beauty to the screen, because you and I, yes, not so much. Right. So we'll see how he behaves. Uh, but yeah, uh, uh, the apocalyptic position or positions, the one kind of core you can kind of find with, uh, so for example, the Lutheran Paul, right, or the Reformed Paul, whatever, or however you want to categorize that is concerned with an individual standing before God. So it's concerned with the God-human relationship, but we would say on probably an individualistic level in terms of understandings of law and covenant, justification having a primarily or even exclusively forensic legal construct, construct kind of idea. The new perspective said basically the idea of an individual understanding is myopic. It doesn't address Second Temple Jewish texts, and it also doesn't bring in the idea of culture. And so the second or the new perspective on Paul, which is almost as we would call it the Jewish perspective on Paul, or an attempt to understand the Jewish perspective on Paul, is basically saying Paul's the Second Temple Jew. You should interpret him under those categories in conversation with, you know, Sirach and, and Philo and Josephus and all of them. And it seems that the concern for them that kind of guides it is not is the idea of ethnocentricity, the fact that the Jews, according to Paul, or Jewish people had uh, a belief in a ethnic corporate uh, election. They're elect based on their ethnicity. And Paul seems to say no. And so there is some truth to that idea as well, because Paul doesn't, you know, the famous text in Galatians 3.28, there's neither slave nor free Jew nor Gentile and so on and so forth. And so and there is that kind of contention and tension in Acts 15 and Acts 10 and all those sorts of issues of law and uh, how the Gentiles are incorporated in the church. And so that's kind of where the new perspective kind of drew its first blood. It was never about justification. 
um, or at least as I understand, it was never about justification or imputation or any of those things that the Lutheran Paul seemed to really prioritize, although it did address them. Uh, the apocalyptic Paul basically came in and said, generally speaking, of course, that the new perspective, uh, while attempting to eradicate the notion of Paul, uh, of Jews being ethnocentric, you know, anti-Semitism basically, basically said, in doing that, basically fell into anti-Semitism by, by the idea of Paul reacting against Judaism as a construct, therefore implying that there's something wrong with Judaism. Right. Uh, so Douglas, one of Douglas Campbell's complaints was, in the new perspectives, trying to make, uh, trying to demonstrate that uh, Second Temple Judaism wasn't so much of this slavish works-based, you know, right. hope you turn out okay in the end, uh, and, and demonstrate its more gracious foundation. It still, it just replaced that with a sense of ethnocentrism that, that, right didn't seem to, to fit as well. And I think Michael Byrd has done a lot of uh, work in Jewish proselytization during the Second Temple period. Where oh, yeah. So, so that, that whole charge uh, seems to stick that it, in an attempt to, 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 to rescue Judaism from the, uh, the anachronistically Catholic idea of Judaism, right. so to speak. They, they, yeah. saddled, they saddled it with a different problem that didn't seem to fit either, which is this sort of, yeah, it, there is a degree of where, yeah, it's Torah focused, but it, it wasn't as if all first century Jews were just bigots who, who and, and you even get that in the pulpit, right? Right. Uh, um, but, but that, you know, those first century Jews, they just thought they were better than everybody else and, and all of this. Yeah, they had earned their way into God's grace. I mean, what was E.P. E. Sanders, uh, Paul and Palestinian Judaism? One of his famous lines in there was, Paul's problem with Judaism was that it wasn't Christianity. Right, yeah. And it's one of those where it's like, on some sense, that's true. But it assumes that Paul basically had to step out. If, if a worldview is a house, right? Paul yeah. basically had to step out of the Jewish house, the Jewish epistemological house, in order to find something completely new. And the new perspective basically argued that, and that, that's an old perspective kind of concept, right? Uh, right? The new perspective basically said, no, Paul stayed in the house, but he had to rearrange a lot of the furniture, knock yeah. down some walls here, and he had to reconstruct, but he, he kept the sort of the structure of the house and the apocalyptic folks come in and say, basically it doesn't, and they're big charge. And it's one I I'm ambivalent towards. I actually don't like, because I think it, it, is, it tends towards supersessionism and even anti-Semitism, if interpreted wrongly is that Paul basically didn't have any need for Judaism because he had Christ. Yeah. And, and there's this kind of you Paul, and there's this, uh, they emphasize, they'll use language like uh, uh, divergence or, or invasion to kind of display something like in the idea of, God has done something new that cuts off the story of old or in some positive construals like mine, it's God brings those threads, those disparate threads into one's thread in Christ. Right. And so that's why, it, but there is a, a very disjunctive view of history within the apocalyptic sphere where um, Judaism and the law and all those sorts of things are kind of either subsumed or we shouldn't say subordinated under the Christ events or cut off. And yeah. then the question then becomes, you know, what of the law, what of God's promise, what of all these sorts of things? And at that point, flip a coin, you're going to get a million different answers with the apocalyptic folks. And I, I, that's why I'm critical of the apocalyptic school, because I think it's a convergence of the ages and of the narratives, but not a disjunct, 
not a severance or subordination of that. right so like with um dispensationalism or anything else when, when you have when you have readings of paul and say torah or law or whatever or some people set it up law and gospel you know you have this you have this spectrum of continuity and discontinuity and what you're saying is some people in the APP go too far in the discontinuities end of the spectrum. But uh, so I guess in a, in a very um, charitable way, you could say that the, what, the, what the APP wants to say is that it's not a matter of the house and rearranging the furniture. It's that the house had been relativized along with all other powers and nations and everything else going on in the world yeah the how they tore down the house to build something else right well uh, or just or just made it or demonstrated that it, it the house doesn't matter right anyway right. that too yeah depending on the on the perspective but yeah but, that, those two are, are but, yeah but the worst would be paul set the house on fire instead that would be the worst that would be the, the the ugly the ugliest way you could say it for well yeah paul people. basically not not only did paul set the house on fire but he left all his jewish brothers and sisters in there to burn oh yeah yeah and there's that kind of and and the the tendency of the apocalyptic paul and this is a critique from someone within that movement is that it essentially emphasizes christian theology at the expense of jewish history yeah and so get kind of Bardian notions of revelation and incarnation. And don't get me wrong, I affirm all of that. I'm fine with all that. But I see that as I, I see that as a both and rather than an either or. I don't think Paul burned his Jewish house down. Um, and I don't think he threw out Philo and Josephus as as horrific people. I think you put Philo and Paul in coordination and conversation, a lot of them, at least when it comes to atonement and purity, they're on the same page. The only difference is Paul has the additional element of the Christ event that begins to reshape the notion of what it means to have a house in the first place. But that doesn't mean he burned everything down. It means everything now is seen through the prism of this Christ event, this incarnational Christ event. Yeah, so for a lot of uh, people new to, to, to this idea, uh, a lot of the focus, of course, naturally goes to Romans. And um, say if you're an APP uh, person like Douglas Campbell, for example, um, you recently had a debate. Um, I, I can't forget the name of the gentleman. He's a very friendly guy. I've seen him around. What was his name? Uh, David Lewis, I believe. David Lewis. I've seen yeah, him. Nice guy. Uh, yeah, he was on Late Flowers program a couple times. I, I knew I recognized him from somewhere. Very, very nice gentleman. Um, Unfortunately, relied a little bit too much on reading Moose commentary, which, uh, you know, uh, but, but that's okay. Uh, at least he, he read wider than Moo. But um, he was familiar with your position, but he didn't seem, uh, and there's not a knock against him because this, is, this happens a lot, when it comes to Greco-Roman rhetorical devices, right? So... Uh, the, the debate was on Romans 7 and Prosopoia was your, you were setting up and you and I differ on this, but your position is it, what that is, is a speech in character. Yeah. And, 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 and so you were having to unpack all of that uh, in that debate and try to demonstrate certain things. But Campbell takes that um, and he reads that into chapters of Romans 1, 18, all the way through uh, chapter 4. 
as yeah. a back and forth between Paul speaking in character with an opponent. Yeah. And then he says, when Paul finally gets to state his case with his full voice, that's Romans five through eight. Right. And that's, that's his gospel. Not so much what people normally think of when they read Romans, especially Romans three. Because I, I was looking up how they how they break that di the the dialogue back and forth down. So, are you on board with that project, um, or do you think that Paul, basically, see, I I see a diatribe through there, but I don't see that device working. Where I don't I I, I don't see those rhetorical cues there. But I was wondering I if you did. Yeah, there, there's no what we call diectic diectic markers, right? Certain yeah. rhetorical, uh, great Greek particles used in certain rhetoric to indicate either shifts or tweaks or kind of, uh, in terms of aspect, right? It'll, it'll shift what is being said, kind of the, the what then, or therefore yeah. what is this? Kind of introducing a question or a, a device of some sort. You don't see that in Romans one through four, really. You see it in Romans three, where you have a diatribe at the beginning of the chapter, one yeah. through nine, where Paul does have some sort of, I wouldn't say dialogue, that's, that's, that's not precise, but- It's more rhetorical is, questions that, that he, that an interlocutor that he's probably- yeah. Heard it's, in it's rhetorical tactician, yeah. yeah. Paul's basically setting, he's putting words in someone's mouth. So it's right. not appropriately speech and character, but it's in the same sort of family. Quintilian right. would be very happy with what Paul's doing. Yeah. The issue I see with Campbell's work is there's no rhetorical uh, um, uh, markers of that sort in Romans 1 and 2, really. Um, yeah. Or at least in the sense that he wants there to be. Um, so he, he wants to say that Romans 1, 18 through 32 and following is... Uh, Paul's Jewish interlocutor kind of speaking. The problem with that is what that person says throughout Romans 1 through 8 is just kind of a standard vice list, vice list but also if you incorporate Greco or even uh, rhetorical ideas of uh, the decline of civilization narratives, right? You know, yeah. and all those sorts of things. Uh, if you include all that, Paul operates with that all over the place. There's there's do a dozen or so vice lists in Paul that echo Romans 1 or at least are coordinate in meaning. Right. Uh, so, so it's one of those where yeah. it's like you have to show why Paul is doing something different here. And the, the, I, what I think Paul is doing differently in Romans 7 is I think there are deactic markers to indicate right. uh, something like that. And there are, of course, debates on that, or at least the meaning of those, but no one disputes that's what Paul's doing. They debate on what he's doing, or on how he's using them, yeah. not that they're there. And who is the, the I? Yeah. Is it Paul? Is it, is it representative uh, of Adam? Like, is your position... Uh, mm -hmm. Some people say, well, it is Paul as a Christian, it is Paul prior to conversion, or it's the, 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 the representative of, of Jews in the flesh under the law, which is my, right. you know, and, and there's arguments for all that. And, and that maybe you and I can get into to that on another episode, but because um, I find it interesting that, that all of those are more probable the the least likely to be correct is paul's talking about his christian experience but i think so personally just in yeah. terms of context lex lexicography linguistic right. analysis echoes intertextuality all that I, I just don't find that to be compelling personally yeah one of the things I, I now for a guy like campbell you know and he's kind of he, he's a uh heavy hit as i think he's still at duke right yeah he's made full professorship at duke divinity yeah and so he he's kind of a standard bearer, you know, at least over here for this perspective. 
And what he sees in Romans 5 through 8, he says it doesn't, it doesn't quite square with what you find in, in Romans 1 through 4 if, if Paul is not representing someone else. He, he doesn't right. see that there's... I don't have that problem because, yeah. I, I, and I know the problem he's kicking it back against. He says, this doesn't seem like, uh, he, you know, like Paul's trying to unravel the, the, number one, the individual with a guilty conscience trying to assuage his guilt and find a Yeah, he, he's reacting against the old perspective where, I mean, he's very reformed in his application of Paul. Like he's, 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 he's a Bardian Calvinist in terms right. of, in terms of all that, but he's reacting against, we would say kind of old school Puritan, uh, high reforms, you know, or yeah. even we might say particularistic Calvinism. He's, right. he's got a universalist streak. I don't know. I wouldn't call him a universalist proper, but he's got that sort of streak in him. But he also is reacting against what he does. He thinks that Romans five through eight is kind of, is a so radical of a shift that the 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 Jewish law court of Romans three and the retributive justice type idea uh, of that that I guess because of the way people haggle over propitiate you know and all of that that he doesn't see that 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 can really be put together um, with with what he finds Paul going on about in Romans five through eight. So that seems to be always my problem with that though, is whether you hold to that or not, you can, I, I don't see enough for Paul to be going. I mean, I, speaking in two, two different voices, him and an interlocutor, because yeah. uh, Paul is just as happy to quote. I mean, I, like you said earlier, he's got vice lists in first Corinthians and elsewhere. And, uh, he seems to be okay with echoing a uh, second temple text like wisdom of Solomon, which you get, I mean, chapters 14 and 15 are basically paraphrased in 18 through 30, uh, was it 18 through 32 in chapter yeah, one? It's, it's, yeah. It's a basically, it's almost yeah. a Jewish decline of civilization narrative, how everything yeah. went wrong in a very compressed, Paul's very compressed and stuff like that, whereas Wisdom of Solomon and a few other texts seem very happy to be like, no, let's have to spend a few chapters exploring this. Yeah. So. Uh, but yeah, Paul seems to be okay with that uh, himself. And uh, to me, it seems like what he, his, his purpose, though, is to levelize outsiders and Jewish insiders onto the same plane Um to demonstrate how they can both be brought together uh, in Christ. So that doesn't seem, because if you don't take, and if you take chapter two as in, in a, now some people are saying that his interlocutor in chapter two was a, what we could call a, a Jewish wannabe Gentile, but I don't, yeah. I'm not convinced of that yet either. I, yeah. That's that's a little bit weird, but just his Jewish leadership interlocutor in chapter two, he, he seems to be going after that as well not so much to dismiss, you know, ethnocentrism, but just to demonstrate that there's a universal need wider than, than, than just the deliverance of, uh, of Jews finally and fully from, from uh, what they, they would consider, you know, they're, they're an occupied people and all that. So I think that you can have all that without Campbell's insertion of uh prosopopoeia or however you say that word um i think that's as good as you said it the other night so 
<laughs> no, it's it's one of those things like and 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 I think the problem and I and I'm not the only one that thinks this, uh, of course, but the thing I've noticed with a lot of what Campbell does, at least with Romans, I mean, it's one of those things where I see people doing apocalyptic stuff and it's basically Galatians and Romans. Yeah. And I'm sitting there going like this is I I, I don't know. I, I get really annoyed when it's like, oh yeah, well, what about the pastorals? I mean, there's a debate on whether or not Paul wrote them. I I'm inclined to think he wrote them. I could be wrong, but I, I'm inclined to think he wrote them. Yeah. So how does how does that fit in the scheme? And how does Col—I mean, Colossians and uh, Ephesians are very apocalyptic. Can be interpreted in a very apocalyptic way. Right. Principalities and powers. I mean, and all these sorts of things. But it's like for some reason people really just fixate on Romans and Galatians. And I'm like, I, I don't know. I, I maybe I'm just a bad Pauline guy, but I don't find those epistles just to be very interesting to read, as opposed to Philemon or First Corinthians. Right. So, well, you say there's out of the polycorpus, there's not a lot to go on that translates if you take that hard APP view, you, it doesn't go anywhere with his other, uh, his other epistles as, yeah. yeah. And then there's, um, uh, Catholic scholar. See, my memory's bad. Um, what's the, uh, the Catholic Pauline scholar that's, that's, um, Fitzmar, Joseph Fitzmar. No, um, Luke Timothy got, Johnson. Yeah, well, yeah, is it might be Luke Timothy Johnson? No, Fitzmaier he wrote a Romans commentary, but it's yeah. really really good one. Uh, is that the anchor one? Yeah, that's the yeah. anchor. That's a, yeah, he wrote a good one. But no, I think I'm thinking of Luke Timothy Johnson because I think I read in one of those counterpoints books where he also makes the point that that even this idea of sin and personal salvation and all of that doesn't even seem to be on Paul's radar when you, when you take the, the whole of corpus uh, of Pauline studies. So if you, if you take that view, that that's not, that was not even his central concern. Right. And that's, I mean, you can see you know, that, I mean, throughout Romans, I mean, a good example of this sort of, I, I want to be careful. I say this sort of very narrow personalized modernistic personalized reading of Romans. I'm not yeah. saying don't, I'm not saying scripture isn't personal or anything like that, but right. when we're doing historical research and we're bringing that to the church, we need to explain to the church, here's why history matters. It's not just a decontextualized text. And we saw that, or I saw that very clearly in the uh, debate with Tyler Vela and uh, John Cramden about Romans 9 and just this uh, personalized uh, emphasis on, you know, the individual salvation versus the collective or the corporate view. And I'm sitting here watching it going like, there's this whole debate between Calvinism and our Calvinists and Armenians seems to center on the notion on the misplaced notion of an individual person getting right with God. And Campbell, I think, really repels against that, but I think he goes the wrong way of doing it. My response is basically if we focus on divine activity, and I'm not talking about sovereignty or control or any of those sorts of things. I'm talking about yeah. how the way God acts in right. Romans and Galatians, you get a completely different picture because then you then Paul has basically put God in, the, in a terrible spot because, you know, what shall we say, you know, in all these things, there's no, 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 all these principalities and powers can't take us. But what about God's own people, Israel? What about God's own faithfulness and word to them? You've just given us a great vision of God. And that's where I kind of buck heads with Campbell is like, yeah, that's all great about Romans 5 through 8. But how does, how does Paul incorporate that into Romans 9 through 11, and which is one of his most painful discourses you'll ever read? Like he's agonizing right. over Israel. And it's one of those things you kind of look at and go, to read Romans 9 through 11 and make it about salvation or personal salvation is such an anachronistic way of reading 
that is just completely like if you read that to Paul, I'm not saying Paul is a good Arminian or good or anything like that, but you read that to Paul, Paul's going to look at you like you got lobsters growing out of your nose. He's not going to look at you and take you. He's going to be like, what are you talking about? Right. I'm addressing how, the, how a faithful God responds to human unfaithfulness. Right. And it's about the character of this God, not about what it, like, you know, the, 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 the man centered kind of nonsense that we see spewed, you know, rhetorically all over the internet. It's like, no, how does this faithful God act? And that's where I think the apocalyptic school has a good leg on a lot of this is because it does focus on apocalyptic or rather divine activity. And instead yeah. of punting it to eschatology, like in the future, it goes, no, the, the incarnation is an apocalyptic event that happened in history that, I mean, the gospel of John, you know, the prologue, the word became flesh and dwelt and all these sorts of things. And it says that is the prism by which we view everything. And that's not a Christian prism. That's a, a New Testament prism. Gotcha. And once you kind of get all that in mind, then the question of the individual salvation in the law court before God, and I'm not even knocking the law court idea. I think it's present in some aspects, but to make that the whole point about what the gospel is, is just so, it's just an absolute bundle of malarkey because Paul's just going like, no, how does the care, how does this righteous, good God who's been faithful to Israel this entire time, even to a remnant, react to people refusing to be in participation and in covenant with him? And, that and that's is, where I think it gets. That's where that's where the Romans nine through eleven becomes so powerful. Yeah, and 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 you get a you get a taste of this for for those who are interested in uh, intertextuality. There's a what was called a catena of passage. It's just a string of passage quotations which you find in chapter three of Romans ten through eighteen. Right? Any Marshall's text from the Psalms? Any Marshall's text from Isaiah? And if you read those. Even where it sounds like he's ripping humanity a new one with these 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 passages one right after another, if you read the wider context, is exactly what you're talking about. Where how the divine activity? How does a faithful God respond? Because in the wide the broader context of those passages, what you find is uh, God moving to action and going to bring the right arm of salvation, as it says in Isaiah. You know all of these passages where it seems like God is about to move, which uh, paying attention to those intertextual cues, which is why verse 21 explodes even bigger than most people realize it does, you know, because of that, that, that buildup, not just of the negativity, but because of this divine activity that's in the wider context of those passages that he, that he, those texts that he cites in that, that passage. So for you, getting into Romans 5 through 8, what, what about Romans 5 through 8 sticks out for us to understand what the apocalyptic perspective is trying to aim at. And since we've kind of discussed already some of the issues with Campbell in chapters one through four, what is it about the, in general, about five through eight that, 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 that gives us reason to rethink? Um, but then how do you square that? And then how do you personally meet that with Romans one through four in a way that that, that, that Campbell doesn't, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, and uh, big picture, what I see happening in Romans 5 through 8 is the, um, and, and maybe a good summarizing text is uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 21 is, um, God in Christ has reconciled you. That's divine activity. That's an invasive incarnational event. God was in Christ reconciling the cosmos to himself, right? There's that divine activity. And then what does Paul say right after that? Reconcile yourselves with God. There is that human response, that human participation. I don't like the language of free will. I think it's just, it's too loaded. But yeah. what the 
apocalyptic school emphasizes rightly, I think, is the participationist nature of Pauline soteriology and sanctification and community. Um, that I don't know how they, they don't usually talk about community, but for me, it's like the idea of an individual being reconciled with God is not the same thing as what Paul is saying. Paul is talking about the sins of a group or a nation being brought back to God. And it does, and that includes individuals, but it doesn't have that, the individual in mind. The individual finds herself, for example, we would say in Christ or in Adam or in Israel and those sorts of things as a member of that particular entity. And what Paul is doing, I think, in Romans 5 through 8 is expounding upon what Christ has done to combat the destructive outcome of Adam and Eve's sin. If we take a massive kind of big picture narrative look, Romans 1 through 4 is the Adamic fallout of what happens when a nation, or rather a person, goes estranged from God and brings chaos and annihilation and destruction and corruption. It impacts the human bodies, it impact, impacts our interpersonal relationship, it impacts even uh, enmity between Jew and Gentile, as we see in Galatians, or not Galatians, well, Galatians 1 through 1 and 2, but also Romans uh, us too, especially the, the, the tension between Jew and Gentile, and also the language of the interlocutor and the diatribe in Romans 3 through 1, all being under sin. And what the apocalyptic Paul says, uh, I think well, is sin is not a personal, little, existential, abstract, metaphysical, pious thing that you do. Yeah. It, and includes that, but sin is a bigger organic uh, agent. We would almost call yeah. it a power. And that's where death comes from, right? We, and so that's why when you'll, you'll see me writing stuff, I try to capitalize sin and death when, when right. they're bigger concept, because these are, as much as you can put, uh, say death is alive and, and thriving, it is. I mean, it's, it seems contradictory, but death as a power is, 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 is engaged against the world. Well, you have to get that from, I mean, you get that from Paul himself in, in mm -hmm. uh, 5, 12 through 21, where, I mean, if you're if you're not trying to think in systematic theology terms, which people are at least interested, lay persons and and armchair theologians and seminary students always, you have to deprogram them in biblical studies courses, you know, because they're always yeah. they're always trying to do um, the the theological readings, um, so to speak. Uh, but but there, when you read, sin is a reigning power. Sin reigns and death reigns. He's speaking of them as rulers, you know, and, and it is sort of this this idea of cosmic rulers, mm -hmm. and, and and of course, death reigning is why you know uh, that that death figures as the last enemy in Paul thought. You know, I mean, so so it's not like this is this. There's no textual basis for it. If you understand the way that he's speaking, just by the speaking of death in a way that's, he, well, he's not talking about just a human being falling over dead, you know, he's yeah. speaking of this idea that it's sin and death both are, are rulers. And yeah. so if, to me, it seems like what the, uh, the apocalyptic perspective on Paul, if, if the old perspective or the Lutheran Paul is worried about the poor guilt-ridden sinner trying to find a way to make God happy. And, oh, it's okay because God killed Jesus so that you don't have to try, right? That's uh, to caricature it, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I think it's right. says God so hated the world he killed his son kind of. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, which if you hear certain preaching, that's what you would 
have to think, right? That's what I heard growing up, preach from the pulpit of my old churches. I heard it. Yeah. So there's that. But then the, the new perspective, I think their, 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 their thing is they wanted to move away from that. But I think the charge against this, the new perspective that I think is right, is that it focused too much on the horizontal relations of human beings and less on the vertical dynamics of God. And then the apocalyptic perspective comes as, as, as a whole other thing that wants to emphasize, no, it's actually bigger than all of that. It, it, it's, oh, sorry, my... I sit too still. My hutch is blocks the sensor, so this goes out. <laughs> Trinity students have a lot of video lectures where I it goes. Were you just doing this over on the side? Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah. that comes back and says, "No, this is this is, and so far, you know, universal, cosmic, think grander, God, powers, human beings, all of this stuff happening at cosmic scale." Yeah, it's not a. It's not a just about God trying to fix human relations problems on the ground, and it's not God trying to just assuage a guilty feeling individual, which probably was not primary in the ancient world anyway. They weren't introspective or anything like that. You know, they, not like that. No. They, yeah, they were. Is a shame culture so much more than this. Yeah. I feel guilty thing. It's. It's, oh, I stole and people found out. What are they going to think of me? It's not, oh, I... Or my family or my community or right. my town or my city or my exactly. nation. Exactly, yeah. right. It's, yeah. it's, it, you know, and how am I going to be identified in, in those lenses? Not so much as, oh, I feel terrible that I, I ripped that guy. No, not, not, it's, it, that's not absent, but that's not primary concern, right? Yeah. So, um, so but the apocalyptic, Paul wants to show this this huge scale divine activity cosmic powers uh, uh you know reigning and oppressing and you know you you have slaves of sin right i mean this mm -hmm. yep. personification of sin as a slave master a yep. slave driver driving human beings and god's at war with all of that you know mm -hmm. and, and 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 it's a radical invasion with the coming of christ and his mission and all that so I think that's a helpful corrective in, mm -hmm. in, in that sense. And I think it gets Paul right there. My problem, again, is, is similar to yours, where I think it, it's trying to, some perspective, some, some takes on this, not all takes, but some, some within that camp are trying to drive a, too much of a wedge between, okay, the, the old ideas are completely wrong and the new perspective missed its target so in that spirit, I want to ask you, what do you think the new perspective got right? What do you think it gets wrong? And what do you think that the apocalyptic Paul fills up the shortcomings of uh, the new perspective? Uh, yeah, I, I think the, the new perspective got it right because it forced us to go back to Second Temple texts and read the New Testament as a document in a proper historical reality. Uh, and that's something we can thank E.P. Sanders or George Foot Moore or N.T. Wright or Jimmy Dunn. We can thank them, you know, sleep in peace, Jimmy, you know, uh, yeah. he just recently passed away. Did he? So, I did not hear yeah, that. Oh, that maybe uh, with, within a month. I forget exactly. But yeah, he recently passed away. Uh, Scott James, McKnight did a, yeah, Scott McKnight wrote a very, uh, very um, moving obituary for CT and all that. So it's yeah, he when, recently passed. Did, he didn't ever retire, did he? I don't think he uh, in name, not in practice, from what I'm told. Okay, because 
Because I was going to say, I might, with his passing, I might be the only person left in any seminary anywhere who uh, holds his view on speaking in tongues and acts as being a twofold uh, speaking and hearing miracle. Because everyone else says, no, they, they spoke, they, they spoke languages out of their own mouths that were the foreign language. And he said no to that. And I say no to that. And I think now that he's gone, I think I'm the only person left on planet earth that holds that view. <laughs> I, I've never, I haven't done enough study on the, on the gifts and the tongues and all that sort yeah. of stuff. So I've colored me ignorant on that. Yeah. But it was me and him. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's all, I mean, he was the biggest name scholar I could find that, 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 that held that, but you know, that's a yeah. shame. Yeah, it is. But right, he, anyway. leaves, he leaves behind a, a great uh, legacy of students and, and writings. So his yeah. Romans commentary for all the stuff I disagree with it in is still just, it's, 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 he's a great read. He's yeah. anything you can find. He's spirited. He's fun. Uh, he's pretty charitable. Even when he, you can tell he's being slapped, you know, unfairly, you know, say by DA Carson on the whole issue of the new perspective His his response to DA Carson was, uh, a lot nicer than probably you and I would have been if we were in his shoes. Um, yeah. But to get, uh, I, I think what Jimmy and and um, and others got right was Paul's a Second Temple Jew writing in a Second Temple context, and we need to try and think of the ways that they thought, and that means we get away from rank individualism. We get away from kind of um, various questions that concern us, whether it's imputation or or a forensic understanding of justification or dikaiosune and all that getting away from that and letting the first century dictate the questions we ask. And I think as a hermeneutical device, as a way of interpreting or an epistemology, I think that is, it's, it's vital. And that's why everyone now, with the exception of the, the aforementioned very few seminaries I mentioned earlier, um, accepts that even if they're, they don't, they, even if they aren't in the new perspective, even if they're old perspective, they still affirm that kind of idea of going back to the first century and letting the first century dictate the questions we ask of the first century before we move into modern evangelical or mainline theology, you know, theological constructor or, or constructive theology. What they got wrong, I think, is what you mentioned. They didn't have a big enough picture uh, or at least when it, as it comes to Paul, as it relates to Paul, I don't think they had a big enough picture of how Paul conceived of the supernatural world. I think for Paul, with his personification of death and sin, um, his view of the final um, destruction of the powers and all of that in 1 Corinthians 15, or even the nature of resurrection, what that actually looks like in 1 Corinthians 15, that's still apocalyptic because it's divine activity. The right. spirit is the one doing all of this. There wasn't, a, there is not a, and I don't, I think N.T. Wright, for all the, his dislike of the apocalyptic school is an apocalyptic guy because he affirms what I would probably say is kind of, you need a bigger picture in order to frame the stuff that's going on. And that bigger picture of the incarnational Christ event. I mean, for I was doing, I'm doing an article right now for on prevenient grace, and uh, for just a, as as kind of a side, people love to start at John 1:19, the word the word uh, coming in, enlightening everyone coming into the world. And Thomas Schreiner makes a big deal out of saying, well, the text doesn't say you know prevenient grace and all that. I'm like, look, if you if you step back and you look at the entire prologue, what happens? The word came into the world and the darkness could not overpower it. That Catalambano language, suppress it, hold yeah. it down, overpower it. And it's like, that's an apocalyptic idea already. What it tells us, the nature of our world, how it's seen by the biblical authors, it's enshrined in darkness, it's oppressed, it's enslaved, it's being broken down by death and sin. And Christ is a light that invades like the, the, the invasion at Normandy on D-Day, right? It's the mm -hmm. tip of the spear into the darkness of the world, casting light out. And I think the new perspective really lacked that kind of bigger epistemological framework to understand 
uh, the bigger questions I think Paul is actually wrestling with, the faithfulness of God, how God acts, and the human place in that. And I, while I think they get right the, human, the, the, the synergistic kind of element of Paul's soteriology, that participation element, they don't extrapolate it further into kind of Christological and, and, and kind of functions like that. And so uh, I, think they, I, think they get the, I think they actually get the horizontal dimension largely right. The problem is I think they, by leaving out the vertical dimension of, of the cosmic, or I don't like to say the universal nature of what God is doing. I, I prefer to say the cosmic. Yeah. I don't like to speak of universal atonements. I like to think of cosmic atonement. It's a bigger right. picture. And I think uh, what the apocalyptic Paul gets right is they provide a bigger prism by which we can view these questions. The only problem is the apocalyptic school tends to eschew the first century in favor of the concept itself, which leads to abstraction and, and personalization mm. and modernism. And my or postmodernism, my response is no, the first century apocalyptic model that Paul provides in his epistemology wrecks all of that because it basically says Paul had a vision in the first century that impacts us today. It's not a dis, it's it's not a disjunctive thing to where the story ends. The story's completed and it's now continuing. Gotcha. And it has a, it has a telos to it and stuff like that. Yes. Uh Contrary to what some people may think of you that, that are in spheres of people that we know, you're actually on probably the most conservative end of the APP school there is. Um, uh, probably. I mean, yeah. I, I, yeah. Uh, if, if N.T. Wright is the conservative, if you have E.P. Sanders, this is my left, E.P. Sanders yeah. here, you have done then right. Uh, right being on the right, uh, I'd be where right is, but I'm yeah. within the, it's my overlap is I'm in the apocalyptic school, so I don't go as far right. as Campbell or right. Gaventa or all of them. I, I, I tend to be on the conservative side of the apocalyptic school, although I don't even know what right. that means. Well, what I, well, I'm not talking about like theological conservatism. Or oh, okay. I'm talking about uh, in terms of uh, continuity, discontinuity. Oh, okay, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Then, yes, I would be. I, I view. I try to view. I, 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 I did screenwriting for my undergrad, film writing, yeah. and so I'm inclined to see narrative, and I'm inclined to see there are shifts that happen within narrative. There's acts and epochs and all that sort of stuff. But I all see it as one big thing. If you're a good storyteller, it's all one story. Right. And I think Paul is operating with the Christ event is an is an act or a sea change within a grandmaster narrative that God is doing. Right. Not a separate movie that's starting over. It's not, you know, we it's not as if we are in um, the Empire Strikes Back and when Christ comes, boom, now we're it's Return of the Jedi. It's like, no, hmm. this whole thing is in the Star Wars universe. Gotcha. Yeah. So that that's that's one of the things that, that I think the critics of the APP what you just said is it the disjunct is too much um sometimes it seems at least with campbell you have to take things that sound reasonable to people like us anyway you're familiar with ancient rhetoric to try to bracket certain parts of paul so that it's not paul's voice to make things go that i don't find necessary um so uh, that that would be my only hang-up, but I, I think, like you said, uh, N.T. Wright could, in a sense, fit into that because it, it reminds me of, 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 I guess, 15 years ago, okay? So, uh, the throes of the new perspective versus old perspective, they were fighting so much about just justification really and they were fighting so much too. yeah and imputation and they were fighting about um they were fighting about what kind of judaism was second you know everyone understands it was never no one ever claimed it was monolithic but 
it seems like like you mentioned D.A. Carson, uh, one of the uh, – I just find him unpleasant. But, you know, it seems like he went so – went through so much effort with those two volumes to show that and he didn't get there i mean the contributors were like to be honest i mean it's kind of a it's exactly what the titles were variegated but they would whenever they found something that they could kind of wave the banner for this this slavish works-based you know no grace kind of thing they would they would take that as representative knowing that their own research didn't support that right but I think that they all that that got so into there that now, fifteen years later, it's a different conversation. But it seems like uh, the saner voices are trying to say um, there is a there is a middle ground here where you can have an apocalyptic Paul that didn't see. Judaism as a house that either needed to be burned down or just relativized and made irrelevant because that's the story. Yeah. You know, and, and so it, there's not too much discontinuity there. It's, it, it's just makes sense as the next plot point or the next uh, plot twist even. Yeah. And, and the big debate between Campbell and Wright, as I understand it, is not their disagreement it's not their agreements about all, all the all the tertiary stuff. The big mm. disagreement is on what narrative is governing Paul, uh, or Paul's epistemology. And for Campbell, it's 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 much more of a, uh, and it is in some sense a grace or spirit, you know, Holy Spirit, you know, grace spirit versus contractualism, kind of that forensic idea of justification where a sinner is legally declared to be in the right. And the books are closed kind of thing, you know, that Lockwood yeah. imagery. Whereas Wright, and I think correctly, and this is why I think he's in the apocalyptic school myself, is sees a master narrative that involves Paul's participation in the retelling of Israel's story in Christ. The waters of baptism, say through Sinai, uh, um, and all the kind of the cosmic stuff that Christ does in Colossians and Ephesians, which the apocalyptic school has stayed away from those. I don't know why. It's It's like, it's like, no, it's like, it's like, we're going to build a car and we've got the best engine in the world, but we really care what the leather smells like inside. It's like, guys, like you can make a really cool car with all of this. And there's no, yeah. there's been no major, but anyway, I'm sorry. So the big debate within Wright and Campbell is the nature of Paul's narrative. And that's where I'm like, I, I think Campbell just is, I, I think Campbell's too reactive against what he perceives in some sense correctly, in some sense, not correctly of, of kind of the old perspective. Whereas N.T. Wright's like, here's a master narrative that can fit both. Right. And, that's the, and that's the thing where I think a lot of people kind of, they also bristle at the idea that Paul could have a master narrative to begin with, you know, and that's, that's a whole other debate, but it's like, I mean, we all operate with stories. We, we live. Yeah. Stories, so. Yeah. Now I do understand wanting to, with the, uh, part of me thinks that N.T. Wright would be happy to be considered in the apocalyptic school of thought if they called it something else. He just quibbles with the name a lot too. Which well, what they should call Campbell stuff is not apocalyptic. They should call it Bardian. Paulinism. Well, that's what, yeah, that's what, that's what N.T. Wright said too, is yep. our, our neo-Bardianism, but, yeah. but, um, you know, Bard didn't get it all wrong either though. That's, that's what's so, that's, that's, that's the problem with Pauline studies is, is it can be a labyrinth, you know, and, and for, for people who've <laughs> never heard of any of this, this, this is going to be quite confusing, but um, it, I want to, kind of shift gears to talk about um 
just the debate on justification, since there is still within the the new perspective and the apocalyptic perspective, there's that's still a discussion too. So that's not that hasn't been uh, settled yet either. Uh, and so far, and even people that you could say are quasi in the new perspective camp, you could you could say quasi there, like for Michael Bird, for example. I mean, he he rejects imputation. Yep. You know, I do too. Yeah, I do too. It's that's that's that's, that's a twenty first. It's a six century question in search of a first century text. Yeah, um, but 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 justification. But I think uh, I. But I, I think that Bird's also not opposed to the transformation aspects of justification. Is not purely, <laughs> purely uh, forensic category. So that's a that's kind of a mess too for people. So. So let's just keep using Campbell as representative. So yeah. justification for the apocalyptic Campbell type, Douglas Campbell. I mean, he wrote a massive book on this. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And it's, then, it's too long. It should have been two books. It's a, it's a, it's endnotes too. It's like a thousand, it's like a thousand pages of text, like 300 pages of endnotes. It's like yeah. a 1700, it's like a 1400 page book. And, it's endnotes, which to me, and he footnotes like Craig Keener footnotes, or endnotes like he footnotes like he cites like Craig Keener cites. Yeah. And it's all endnotes. And I'm just sitting there going like flipping through. I'm just like, you know what? I'm I'm not going to read this just on pure principle anymore. Like, and I, I did, I've read the whole thing, but I'm just, it, it's like eating, it's like eating a, a, a 15 pound chocolate cake. It's just like, yeah. and as someone who's eating healthy and starting to work out a little more and trying to get healthy, the very thought just makes me nauseous. So, right. um, but yeah, so I'm sorry. I just, it's, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, but everyone's still interested in justification. So uh, if you haven't figured it out by now, um, along with all of relevant New Testament scholarship, Reformed Lutheran justification ideas are the non-starter for, for us. You know, that's a, okay, uh, you need to go read more. Um, so I, I'm sorry that sounds condescending, but this is Trinity Radio Extra and Brax is not here to- There's a little bit of extra enough. spice. That's, that's, that's all that's, it is. It's that's a right. extra spice. So be, because that's all just kind of, oh, that's cute that you don't understand the Bible. Uh, but but, but for, for, for people interested in the topic of justification, hot button topic still, it's never, n- never goes away. Apocalyptic perspective, new perspective, and what perspective should, in Nick Quint's mind, people have on it? So for the apocalyptic, the... Campbell, I, after reading Campbell, I'm still not 100% certain how to classify his actual view of justification. But we can go with J. Lou Martin. J. Lou Martin taught at Union Theological Seminary, I think it was Professor of Biblical Theology until he passed away a decade or two ago, I forget. Um, Beverly Gaventa studied under him. No, oh, okay. And so there's a, there's a huge, I think she did. She went to Union, I think she did. I, and they're all APP school. Yeah, they're all APP, yeah. they're all APP school. And, um, uh, Raymond Brown taught there. So a lot of, a lot of great people taught there, uh, or at least within that kind of sphere. Um, he tried, he translated it and tried to understand justification, you know, to Kai Sune or as Douglas Moo, um, didn't realize how funny it sounded when he said, when he was debating Doug Campbell on, uh, yeah. he called it the Dick word group because it's, you know, it's, the stem is the D-I-K, you know, Dikai yeah. Sune, Dikai O and stuff like that. But he called it the Dick stem and I'm just like, or the Dick word or something like that. And I just mm-hmm. went, yeah. Do you have, and my first thought was if, if you've got a kid, you got to read the, this stuff to like a son or a daughter and have them be like, uh, don't, 
right. don't you know, tweak that. But one of those things is I, I just, oof. But it's uh, so but, innocent coming from Moo. No, it is. And it's one of those where it's like, you're not even mad, you're not offended, you're just like, oof. Oh, well. Uh, but yeah. uh, in that, uh, the, the Dikaya award group and all of that, um, what Martin did in his massive Galatians commentary, which is really good and really like it's 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 like it's like eating a really good piece of meat and finding a couple toenails in there it's like yeah it, you're not that's a word picture that sucks wow yeah i know good. but that's kind of how it is it's like there's some stuff in there most of it it's like this is probably pretty good this is really groundbreaking it's really yeah. thought-provoking then there's a, a bite where you're not uh-oh you know kind of thing um but he uh he argued that just uh, justification language should be understood in terms of rectification or making things right yeah. we would say something like reconciliation which there is a word group and, and that's uh le uh in terms of lexemes completely unrelated uh in terms of semantic range and meaning we have a different word that paul uses um, but they see it in terms of the the process of making things right and so instead of having a forensic or a legal understanding where a sinner is declared, which is still a, a really imprecise way of talking, it's not as if it's like magic wanding it, you know, I declare you righteous. It's like, well, that's not how it works because that misses as a new perspective point out the horizontal element that doesn't just wipe it all away. And especially as you know, and I know in a gift giving culture and where there's economic and development and interpersonal relationships with all that, right. you can't just wipe that away. God can, right. but that's not the same as wiping it all away. Right. Um, so the apocalyptic school basically argues, generally speaking, that justification has a participationist, um, interpersonal, reconciliatory nature. And so um, it may, depending on the apocalyptic person, it may include the notion of legal or forensic, um, but I think for them, it, it, it's fundamentally ethical and participationist. And so it tries to get away from the law court. And, try, and I think that's right, because I don't think Dekayasune fits well with the law court. It, it pushes that over here and says, no, the idea of making things right or rectifying a situation, God rectifying the human relationship, you know, the God-human relationship um, is central to it. And that's where they think of, of Romans 4. Uh, they think Romans 3 and 4. Um, they also think of it um, in terms of, and this goes back to Ernst Kesemann, which I, as, as I learned German, K, uh, uh, oh gosh, what is it? Kase is cheese. So it's cheese, it, hmm. cheese man, you know, Kosman, Kosman. Uh, that I just, I, I was tickled pink when I read that or hmm. figured that out. Um, but he argued that the righteousness of God, that famous genitival phrase meant something like God's faithful, uh, faithfulness displayed in character. Yeah. Um, and I, and something along those lines. And I think that also is an apocalypse because Kazemon is kind of the, the grandfather of, of kind of the apocalyptic movement. He may not have sired everyone, but everyone can kind of find their, 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 the, the, the find him as kind of their, their grandfather in that. And so they kind of view it in terms of that. And I think that's largely correct. Uh, I'm not willing to exclude the law court entirely. That, you that can't kind of notion. Because Paul sets up a judgment scene. Right, so, yeah. right. Um, and that I, was that was the language, though. I mean, that... that the really, kaya, oh, yeah, the, the, the verbal... Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Uh, Campbell seems to really press against that. I'm, I'm kind of like, well, if Paul uses it that way, then we need to figure out... Well, not just work. Paul, but that just records from the ancient world, that was right. kind of their language. So, I mean, you yeah. just got... So, uh, but, but, I, but what they're... I, I think what they're aiming at is not... Well, no judge on earth and in, in, in Israel ever uttered that word because you can't make that claim. But, but what they're trying to, I think what they're really after is that because they're really big on the notion of the love of God when we're talking about divine activity, that is an active thing. 
and, yeah. and, 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 I, and I, I think that they're pushing against the law court stuff simply as an overreaction to it. Well, I think it, I, I think you actually, it's, yes, I think that's a hundred percent true. I think, I think the implicit thing, and I had this with a conversation with someone I know about atonement is the notion of the, uh, and it, there's kind of this implied, and, and the thing with Pauline theology is you touch one thing here, the whole web shakes and that's yeah. in Pauline studies. And so I mean, even, especially we're doing Pauline theology, right? What we've noticed is in, implicit in all of this, and it's not been brought up, uh, and that's not our fault or anything, but it doesn't get brought up, is what is the nature of the atonement? Because that will dictate how we understand the God-human relationship, uh, especially in, in you know, the God-Christ-human relationship. Uh, if you believe in uh, retributive justice, um, if you believe in all these sorts of kind of things, then that will color what you think uh, justification is or righteousness language is. Um, and it's kind of one of those things I'm noticing the more I do study on this is like your view of atonements, oddly enough, will impact how you view a lot of these other issues in Pauline theology. Right. Um, and I, I mean, I'm, I don't, I'm, I affirm substitutionary atonement wholeheartedly. I have issues with the penal aspect because I don't find it to be well grounded in the text. That's not to say I couldn't be convinced otherwise or anything like that. So I'm not, I don't, I'm not even opposed to retributive justice or anything like that. So I'm not even on that, on that train. What I find difficult is what people kind of bring to the discussion of justification is the notion of someone somewhere needed to be punished. Yeah. And it's like, well, no, because if we read the synoptic gospels, Jesus forgives people all, all over the place without needing, you know, justification or, or retributive justice or anything. Yeah. Um, but what I think a lot of people bring to the conversation is an assumption of, of I'm a guilty, wretched, awful worm of a sinner, because it, there's a suit, sort of piety in that, you know, I'm right. a guilty, awful, horrible, wretched sinner. And God is um, the judge declaring me innocent because of Christ. And it's like, well, if that's your picture, if all you have, and I'm not saying you don't, you can't have the law court, but if all you have is the law court, then justification looks like the, the judge stamp, slamming the gavel down and declaring you innocent when he should have declared you guilty because yeah. of Christ. And if you have, if that's all you have, then you'll see that in a few instances in Paul, but that basically runs you into the risk of doing the whole, uh, the gospel coalition stuff, right? The, the gospel is not, you know, uh, my gospel is the resurrection of Christ, son of David, right? And I'm paraphrasing second Timothy two, eight, right? This is my gospel. The gospel is not the resurrection of Christ. It is a specific theory of atonement or model of atonement. that gets pushed into the discussion on justification because you need the both of them to kind of talk together in order to get, you know, the, the wretched sinner, the God punishing, the atonement, you know, contractualism and the construct and all that. And yeah. it's one of those things where there's so much implicit conversation going on that we're not even aware of it. And an example I use, and I'll, I'll stop talking, is the idea of a massive, I, I don't know if you have these out in Indiana, and where I grew up in Southern California, the huge freight train would come down from San Diego or Long or uh, Los Angeles or Long Beach, pass through our area, uh, and then head down to San Diego. But it's a massive freight train that took 15, 20 minutes to go by at 10 miles an hour. And it's almost as if, and I think this happens for a lot of us, each one of the, the first, the, the one engine on that train is pulling a lot of theological freight. And unless we stop and pick that train, you know, that engine up and look at it and go, what is this bringing into the station? We need to question that. What are the assumptions brought in with this train? Because if you just, oh yeah, I accept the whole train. Well, no, you're not accepting the train. You're accepting the train plus the 500 cars of history and theology and tradition and exegetical stuff that's all being assumed in this whole train. It's like, no, we need to stop and go back as the new perspective rightly pointed out, looking at everything as a piece of a puzzle 
not forgetting that we are talking about a massive puzzle, but look at each page individually before we just start slamming it in and going like, yes, this is how this all works. And I think we see a lot of that in the justification talk because there's a lot of theological freight that's just unjustified. And I'm not even saying it's all wrong. I'm just saying we need to get back to, to the source of actually thinking more clearly and all of that. Yeah, so I, I'm a little bit more friendlier to penal substitutionary atonement than you are, but I'm okay with it insofar as you put when we talk about the pieces of that puzzle, you got to put them in the proper space. And one of the things I appreciate yeah. about the apocalyptic perspective on Paul is the bringing in of the, the cosmic dimensions to this, even to the point of where justification that if, if all you have, like you said, is, is guilty or innocent, Oh, you're guilty, but Jesus makes you innocent. So cool. If, if that justification understanding is too small, just like yeah. penal substitutionary atonement is too small for what atonement is. It doesn't, yeah. it's not even the main thing. And I know some people say, well, it is the main thing. Well, that's because you're individualist centered. You need to, you need, you need to get your yourself off the, off the hook from hell, you know, or whatever your, however you frame your, you know, your, whatever you emphasize in your soteriology. Now yeah. I'm like you, I'm fine with the law court. I think birds right that, that justification is not merely a legal, but it, you can't just throw all transformative things to sanctification. There's a, there's aspects of this participationist idea in, in justification. It is individual and corporate um, mm -hmm. for sure. There's that dimension. But so I think, I think uh, Campbell is right to push back on what he dubs justification theory, yeah. because when you talk about the gospel coalition earlier, I mean, they can say the gospel is justification by faith. No Jesus in that sentence at all, right? I mean, no resurrection it, in that sentence. Yeah, no resurrection. It could be Bill from North Little Rock who died for your sins for all justification. Believe in Bill. Well, it's like, yeah. I, and I push back you know? on my reformed brothers and sisters. I'm like, hey guys, like, uh, if if you can't have any argument about justification or atonement theory or anything, because that presupposes a New Testament to ground the conversation, and you don't have a New Testament without the resurrection of Jesus. Right. Which means the resurrection of Jesus is at the center, implicitly or explicitly, of all of New Testament epistemology. You don't have that. You can't even talk about a New Testament to debate over. So justification right. and atonement and all that, you know, it is the gospel. It's not. Jesus' resurrection is the gospel. Thereby, you can have important conversations about all the stuff that you like um, that, you know, drives your denomination or your ideas or your convictions and all that. But if you don't have the resurrection of Jesus grounding the conversation, then any, I mean, egalitarianism is the gospel, Jonathan egalitarian if you're non-egalitarian you don't affirm the gospel it's like right. what nonsense i mean i think it's important i affirm it i preach it i teach it all that but it's like how arrogant to say this one little second tier issue in christian theology that i'm very passionate about somehow encapsulates all that jesus came to do it's like no right sorry not gonna happen no the gospels are the gospel and the microcosm of that you know uh, you don't get the you what did jesus rise from okay you need the resurrection to see what killed him to yep. have him come back that so the yeah the resurrection is the like you say the epistemological key to that um and, and i think that that gets overlooked for because people would rather focus on on uh dogmatics than they would actually the story of uh, of king jesus himself so uh, that that's a problem that we still find and i know you you picked on the reform cam and i'll pick on them too here as well because for all of their talk about exegesis 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 it's rare that you find someone like a Michael Bird or someone from that tradition that demonstrates they've actually done 
their homework to do exegesis because exegesis we say well it's just pulling out from the you know extracting out from the text it's me yeah but if if you don't have a mind soaked in not just the language the language is almost that's one small part of everything you need to know about about the the social world and the you know the cultural world of the mediterranean and then find where these authors the biblical authors of the new testament their ideologies which are different peter had a totally different ideology than than paul yeah so, so you have to you have to do all of that homework and i think and, and because the way scholarship works that homework gets bigger and bigger and you know there's there's as discoveries are made as we're rethinking old old categories to try to make sure we're using reading through ancient categories and not 2000 years of theological reflection a lot of which is good and a lot of which is right yeah. but it doesn't it doesn't help us unpack these texts on their own terms so you got to you got to filter some of that stuff out so that you can filter other stuff in as you're reading ancient documents you know yeah and I, I use the phrase the text should dictate to you in a large sense not the whole sense but in a large sense the questions you ask yeah. the text should dictate or guide you to think better about the questions you ask so if you come to example you come to 1 Timothy 2:12 and your first thought is who can be a pastor in your modern Baptist church, as Baptist, uh, if you come and do that, then you're going to have a completely different thing in mind than, you know, than someone who goes to the text, whatever they believe, and go, what is the text trying to communicate? And how, and what questions arise for me out of that? Not, oh, I need to know who can be a pastor in my local church. I need to go to this. And it's like, no, the text should be the thing that plants the seeds for the questions that you'll ask not the okay. other way around. And I think a lot of evangelical scholarship has gotten it backwards because, I mean, let's face it, we're already coming to the text with bias, but let's face it, the historical grammatical method is not the only method in terms of theological reflection and construction and history. It can help. It can tell you what a text says, but it can't tell you what it means, or at least in well, any significant depth. Yeah, well, the, that's the funny thing about, everyone talks about grammatical historical hermeneutics, um, but that's just blowing smoke in a lot of ways because most people what they they say is grammatical historical hermeneutics uh really doesn't put any emphasis on the historical part and then they try to read metaphysics into grammar and so you what you end up with is what you started with and it's not grammatical historical hermeneutics at all what it is is theological interpretation um and 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 mystical readings that you've from traditions. Yeah. So, if, you're, so, you know. if you're a Christian, you're going to do theological interpretation. The question is, are you going to do it well and are you going to be aware of it? Right. Well, that's why I like the, you know, Robin's socio-rhetorical method where you have uh, five layers of uh, textures of the text and then, um, uh, oh, what was his name? Uh, wrote the James Jew commentary. He added a sixth texture. Um, Peter David's maybe? No, hang on just a second. Another another break. Okay. Let's see if I can find it before him. Uh, Was it James or Peter? William Brosin. Oh, yeah, okay. So he added that six homiletical texture after the sacred texture to the to that methodology. That, and, and so what I like about that method and why I preach it is because it forces you to look at First, the um, the intertexture, just 
let the, the text create the world for you, then mine it for intertextuality, you know, and then make sure you ha have enough knowledge for the sociocultural texture of it. Then make sure you have enough knowledge to understand the ideological texture. And then you can get to the sacred texture or the, you know, what does this tell us about God, man, our relationship with God, how, what, what God wants us to do and all of that. And then of course, Brosen added the homiletical texture, which is, now this is how you share it with others, whether you're preaching or, or teaching or, or, and I think going through that way of doing it get, at least gives you a framework to make sure you don't leave anything out. But what it also does is it gives you a ton more homework to do, you know, because intertextuality, most people just think, oh, that's whenever the New Testament quotes in Old Testament. Well, it doesn't just quote the Old Testament. It'll echo, it'll allude. So you need to know your Bible, but guess what? It echoes and alludes all kinds of non-canonical literature as well. It's all over the place, you know, even if it doesn't directly cite. So, you know, that, that forces people, that method forces people to really dig deep and mine the text. And thankfully it's not an individual project. There's resources available. We're all working on this um, and we can't all do all of it. So that's good. But I, I think just to give my concluding thoughts on this, I think that the, like the new perspective was in its time with Sanders. I, I think the apocalyptic perspective, every time a new thing comes, it's all bombastic, like Luther when Luther came along, right? But we yeah, don't like Luther too. Well, they, they like and don't like Luther. Right. But, but when, Lu, when he, he swung a big bat, right? Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the Reformed tradition had to temper some of that. And then comes along Sanders swinging a big bat and others, and then others come along and tamper that. I like it when these, 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 these schools of thought swing a big bat, if for no other reason it shakes us out of our collective dogmatic slumbers and forces us to rethink, see where, of course, there's going to be some overreach and, you know, or whatever. There's going to be some, some things, points of agreement, disagreement. But it keeps giving us more information that we can use to challenge our thinking about these texts. And I agree with you, the worst parts of it is the modernist and postmodernist aspects of it that just, that, that seems driven more by modern concerns rather than ancient ones. That, that is a fair knock. Um, and the same way that a, that, a, that a knock against the new perspective would be, it's too horizontal and not vertical enough, uh, the, the God-man dynamic. Uh, and then the old perspective is just wrong. <laughs> yeah. 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 But I mean, I like that these things come along because they, 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 they always drive us back to the text. Now, because of the information age, these things hit a lot sooner to the masses than, than they used to, but it still always lags behind for the layperson than it does in academia. Thankfully that lag times less and less now because of the information age and scholars are everywhere running around on the internet, which is uh, I think a good thing overall. It can lead to some confusion, but you have people like us to wade you through all that because unfortunately we have to read, uh, you had to read that big 1700 page book that could have been written in 400 pages. Yeah, a 400 page book on method. And yeah. then a 300 page commentary on Romans one through eight. I'd be, I think that would have been a great book by Campbell, but yeah. And he would have made more money with two books. Yeah, exactly. That was my first thought. I was like, he's not a good capitalist. He's just, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, he goes to Duke after all. I mean, you know, he's a professor there, so we don't, he may not even care for that, but 
yeah, I, th those are my thoughts. So what are your thoughts on all of this? Uh, and we'll close it up. Yeah, no, I, I think, um, I think the apocalyptic school swings a mighty heavy bat. And my concern is it does so and it misses the Jewishness of Paul. It misses the Jewishness of the New Testament. Uh, I, I, maybe Luke, but I think probably most of the authors and not all the authors are Jewish. Um, it misses on the particularity of culture that involves Jewish uh, theology and minds or theologies even um, and mindsets. Um, it doesn't take into account those sorts of things very well. But what I think it does, and I think this is why it's, because I think Jewish apocalyptic theology and thought was already coordinate with Paul. I mean, Paul, I think, would be very at home with Enoch or, um, you know, uh, the civil, some of the parts of the Sibylline oracles and others. I think Paul would have been very at home with all of that. And, I, and so what I look at the apocalyptic school doing well is it adds personification it adds a cosmic and supernatural element that a lot of people either downplay or miss or don't care about because, you know, we're good mainline theologians. We don't have to worry about demons and powers and death. Right. You know, just feel nice in your heart and do nice things, you know, and then you're fine. Um, and I think the apocalyptic school adds a level of agency and urgency and malevolence to our world. And what I mean by that, it actually suggests strongly that death is not something that happens to a physical person when they die or a person when they die. It's not just some spiritual abstract, like it's separation from God or something like that. It's not just yeah. some sort of pious thing. It's an actual carnivorous enemy that is seeking to destroy and, and bring to nothing. And it, it paints a dramatic vision of history and of eschatology that says God has acted in Christ to bring all things back to the way they are meant to be in participation and communion with God and a renewed creation and all of that. Um, and it doesn't isolate the individual sin, although it does include it. And it places uh, the work of Christ at the center of all things. It places the Christ event pro properly where it should be for Christians. And all of that is good things. Very good things. Yeah. And it, at the end of the day, the apocalyptic, school at its best without its excesses or its or its misconstruals places christ at the center of history and it incorporates the best aspects of the new perspective because it recognizes if you are reconciled to god or if god has reconciled us to god in through christ and we are therefore to reconcile ourselves back to god in that excuse my wesleyanism that participation is synergistic relationship because god has acted divine action the human has the capacity to respond to the object of faith, namely Christ. And therefore, because you have been reconciled with God through Christ, you can therefore look at the pneumatic reality of interpersonal relationships horizontally and begin to repair and reconcile those two. And that's where the nature of the church comes in. The church as a reconciling place of sinners who are seeking perfection and sanctification and peace to one another. And I think the the Apocalyptic School paints a beautiful picture of what theology can and should be, and it's grounded in the first century text of the New Testament, properly understood. All right. So where can people find more Nick Quint? They should, and, and they should find more of you. So where can they find you? Well, uh, you'll find this funny. Today, I got my uh, royalty notice from Whippenstock for my book, The Perfection of Our Faithful Wills, and I sold 60 copies of that. So I'm very surprised by that. I thought I only sold half of that, according huh. to Amazon. 
So yeah. that was kind of cool. Didn't make much, but it's, I, I just thought it was kind of cool. So they can find that book if they want to see uh, an, an exercise in Pauline theology through the lens of a Wesleyan view of apocalyptic sanctification and entire holiness and all of that. Um, they can find me on Twitter at uh, Nick Quint, which is just my last Q-U-I-E-N-T. Um, I tweet sometimes when I shouldn't and many times when no one's listening or cares. Um, and I have two podcasts that I really should do more on. We have one, a couple episodes in the bag for one of them, but you got to wait for them. One is called the Synergists podcast, spelled the center way, S-I-N-N-E-R, and following. Um, we're going through a series on atonement right now. So if you like kind of what you heard, or at least you're bothered or you're annoyed by it, um, start listening to that series on atonement, and it might help clarify a few things. Um, and also my wife and I do ministry through uh, the Split Frame of Reference podcast on iTunes and all of that, where we go through uh, uh, text on scripture and Christology and gender and argue for an egalitarian understanding of not only of husband and wife relationships, but also of the church. So um, if that tells you a little bit too much of what my theology is, then um, I don't care. There you go. Nick Quint, ladies and gentlemen, a dear friend of mine. Um, thank you so much for, for doing this. I uh, hope you come back. We've got other topics to discuss. Uh, I, I hope people will uh, get your book. But uh, before you go, what, what is one book that you would recommend this week if they are interested in the apocalyptic perspective on Paul? That's readable for most people. It'd probably have to be that Four, four Views book on the Apostle Paul, um, edited by, I want to say, Mike Bird. You get Campbell in there, you get yeah. Luke Timothy Johnson, you get Tom Schreiner, and you get uh, Mark Nanos, uh, Nanos Nanos. Um, it's a very, it's limited. It's, it's you know, more focused. I don't think Campbell does a particularly great job of articulating the apocalyptic Paul, uh, but to Campbell's credit, there's stuff he writes in there that I know he has not, he has changed his mind on, specifically women in the Deuteropaulines and stuff like that. So he's actually yeah. become more quote conservative or moved further to the right on that so yeah and he's actually i would recommend that too that way you can kind of see where that view fits with all of the other perspectives on paul but campbell is actually pretty good in the rebuttals yes and campbell's then, campbell yeah. shines in the rebuttals right so um, so yeah. even if his positive case is not to your liking i, I do want to say that the reason why you can't just say, well, this is not what I'm familiar with, so I'm going to screen it all off, is because if you read the rebuttals, you find out why some of it, at least, at least what we've talked about is the best parts of it are necessary because of the weaknesses of, say, the old perspective and even the new perspective, which I know that a lot of people in our audience are more friendly to the new perspective. And I am too, but I still have my quibbles with it. Um, but you and I, we're guys who equivalent with, 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 with everything. I mean, that's how you make a living in New Testament scholarship is <laughs> Right. Well, now it's over the minutia. for breakfast. Right. There you go. Well, that's all that's left because everyone else has already had the big, the big thing. So we, we, we get yeah. the minutia. But anyway, so thank you for watching Trinity Radio Extra. We'll see you next time. God bless.